Hey, hey, folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. Chris and I have reverted back to the old times of Zoom for this very special guest appearance, which contains some of the grossest things <laughs> we've ever had in this podcast. <laughs> Proper triggering. <laughs> yeah, um, so just bear that in mind. Uh, oh, it's it was, amazing, it's, though. It's, it's amazing. amazing. It's fucking brilliant. Like, yeah. it's, I'll laugh a minute, really, but um, the whole thing is really, really funny and, and insightful and engaging. Um, but I like. We're not bullshitting you, there's don't, no hyperbole here Don't come crying to us with laundry yeah. bills If you happen to get a wee bit of sick in yourself, okay? <laughs> yeah So you've been forewarned, but yes, enjoy this Because we certainly did Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast I'm Mark, uh, I'm in a different location from Chris today. We're in two separate locations, unusually, uh, on Zoom. Uh, so say hello, Chris. Yeah, hi, Mark. We're back to the COVID format. We are. We are, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already feeling the sniffles. And, well, I mean, the COVID's coming back, so we might as well bring back uh, this approach, yeah. right? It feels like going back to the old ways, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> How, how's your chest? Secret guest? Easy to breathe? No COVID symptoms? Me? No, I'm more concerned about syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad for the voice right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah very, very definitely. Yeah. Uh, Mark, who's that? Yeah, that's Eugene S. Robinson. I know him from the band Oxbow. But he's also a writer, a martial artist, I believe. Um, and yeah, you're a, you're a man that gets about a little bit, I would, you would say. Uh, like syphilis. You, like syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like syphilis. Those, things, those things are very definitely connected. <laughs> um, I'm going to go for some hit points. I know Eugene from Boonwell. I actually mentioned Boonwell on the show a few times because I travelled to Bologna last year and saw Boonwell and Baratro at a tiny little venue there uh, and you, you blew my socks off. Um, it was a fantastic show, man. Really enjoyed it. Came home with the vinyl, which is not all that easy in hand luggage, but I made it. Well, that's cool. The next Boonwell record is a, a double album, Gatefold, and I think it'll. the big secret is it'll be done on Skin Graft and Overdrive. So it should be easier to get in uh, in the UK. Fantastic. Nice. I won't have to get a cheap flight uh, from Ryan yeah. to go and pick up a vinyl. <laughs> right, yeah. so uh, let's do this properly, I guess. Um, so as Marcus said, uh, this is Eugene S. Robinson. Not Eugene Robinson. Be careful when you're Googling that. You get a lot of misleading results. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you get the, the, le- the, the less handsome journalist or, or, the fo- or the football player that likes hookers. So. <laughs> That's the one. Uh, there's there's a lot of Venn diagram stuff going on there, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, this is obviously primarily a music show, so most of the audience will probably know you as Eugene of Oxbow. Uh, much like Mark as I said I know you as Eugene of Boonwell um, and some people know you as Eugene Robinson of Whippin' Boy those are the really hip cats (laughs) 
<clears throat> by the way, that's not the Irish whipping boy, and I say that uh, to disambiguate. I know there was legal action involved with Sony because of the name of whipping boy, and being in the UK, whipping boy were a thing here, but it's very much not the spoken word type indie rock band uh, of the of the nineties. This is the yeah. It's it's a hardcore band. The first one, the real one. The, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like <original>. OG. Um, <laughs> The chances are, though, that a lot of people don't have, a, I think, a, a good idea of the breadth of your musical output. We'll, we'll do a wee bit about some of the collaborations you've done. And there's also a good chance that many don't follow your wider career in general and realise that you're a publisher. You started out as a publisher, really, an author, a journalist, uh, as Mark said, a mixed martial artist, fighter, um, an advice columnist at one point, which was fascinating, a TV host, uh, an actor. Um, so I think we can kind of use the word polymath with a degree of confidence and without straying into the realms of undue flattery there, Eugene, you, uh, you're a man of many trades. Uh, yeah, all of them poorly paid apparently. So, <laughs> but it's been, it's been a fun ride. I mean, the writing came before anything else. So that's, that's been the thing that just kept the lights on the food on the table and so on. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, it's, it's, I showed up to college to be a biologist and quickly realized that that wasn't going to happen. So, uh, you know, they say, uh, if you're looking for leisure, follow the football players. <laughs> As it happened, <laughs> a lot of the football players ended up taking journalism, but uh, it's it's worked for me. So, Well, we'll start with Eugene, the interviewer, I think, because one thing that kind of struck me when we were coming to do this, the usual scenario for, for us interviewing musicians, I'm sure you can sympathise, Eugene, is that you're trying to humanise an otherwise quite opaque figure. They usually communicate with the public in bursts and usually on a promotional tour, and it gives yeah. people just a patchy idea of their personality, their inner workings, their loves and hates and things. So aside from being a man with nearly four decades of you being interviewed, you're a prol prolific lyricist, first and foremost. You're the author of multiple books, fiction and otherwise. Uh, and you're a guy who maintains a really lively blog online, um, Substack, uh, Look What You Made Me Do. And that kind of gives us insight into your personality in a way that I'm not really used to. <laughs> you're a far more transparent guy than most of the people we speak to. So who interviews the interviewers? Like, Who watches The Watchmen here, Eugene? How would you interview Eugene S. Robinson after 40 years of spilling your guts well, I, I would I would do my research. You know, there's a guy Andreas Boucher who interviewed us on German TV, and and he his interview style was that kind of was very popular at the time. The MTV interview style, where he's like, I don't know anything about you guys, so fill me in. But uh, sad, sadly enough for him, he had insulted me minutes before the interview. So I decided to stonewall the guy during the interview, as well as, you know, having a lot of professional contempt for starting an interview that way. So we just answered all of his questions, yes or no, because he, he answered yes or no questions. He didn't say, you know, um, how would you describe your music, right, which requires a serious answer, right? He, he would say, have you been playing 10 years? And we go, yes. <laughs> and just sat there it was live and on tv and i purposely ruined his interview because again first and foremost i'm a journalist put some effort into it so if i was interviewing me i would start with the book right? you know presuming that you've read read a portion of it since that book goes back to birth right i mean you can't in 280 pages nobody was interested in you know i'm not stalin you're not interested in like one of these historical tomes at 600 pages so we had to kind of segment it well where do, where do we start we start with birth and go to, to the creation of oxbow um and that seems to give a, a, a at the very least if you're a fan of oxbow it's an explainer as to where some of these lyrics came from so mm -hmm. that's that's how i would do it 
I would definitely draw your attention to a quote that uh, you, you came out with in an interview a few years ago. In general, my belief is that people are more likable the less they talk. Yeah, <laughs> I, find that, I, find be, I find that to be really, really universally true. And especially as I get older, I, you know, somebody once made a joke about singers. They said the first to start talking, last to stop talking and never around to carry equipment. And while, while I proudly support the third portion of that, <laughs> um, I find that I, I, I'm enjoying talking less over time um, because it doesn't mean I'm always listening. You know, you get this cocoon of silence with a man alone with his thoughts. And that's kind of my preferred state of being at this point. I'm thinking about stuff. So, Well, you made um, reference to a book there and... It's A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight Into Murderer's Row, a memoir, which is actually, I think, officially released this coming week. So this podcast will actually be out uh, as the book hits the shelves um, yeah. or digital shelves. Well, they sent they sent me my copies. They're sitting at my house in California right now. But I think the official release date is October 10th. Oh, it's 21st on Amazon and it's 21st on some of the digital bookstores. So oh, nice. Okay, yeah, yeah. good. good. Um, you mentioned in some interviews recently that the memoir has been the hardest piece of writing for you. I just want to ask you straight up, why? Why what? Why has it been so hard for you to write about yourself when you've written about yourself um, in a lot well, of because, because, you know, there's a certain point in, in where I had a road to Damascus moment, right? <laughs> you know, like where Saul on the road to Damascus gets struck blind and has this kind of revelation that changes his, his complete angle of attack. And, you know, historical figures have had it as well. You know, Hitler with his uh, hysterical blindness post- World War One. I mean, you know, these are bad comparison points. But you know, there's a certain point at which I decided that I was no longer going to struggle with with you know, becoming, and that I was really going to focus on on being. And that's pretty much the point that I I call kind of comedically, you know, when I lost my mind, and that forced a lot of changes. And one of the things I promised myself is that if it if it start to actually hurt people around me like some of these historical figures, like Stalin had one as well. Mao had one. Hitler had one. If, if it started to, if it started to affect people around me, I would stop. And it didn't, but you know, it didn't mean that my depredations didn't go long, wide and deep. And so, you know, there's a plethora of, you know, husbands that I didn't want in the process of discovery to anger. <laughs> you, know, that, that, you know, as well as, you know, I've got kids, I, my kids really need to hear about, orgies and threesomes and, and just the the, the 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 depth of of filth that i've waded through uh to get to this point in time so i didn't i didn't really want to write that and um a friend of mine uh jamie stewart from juju just gave me his memoir and he writes about nothing but that and i was like this is inter of course he's got no kids and uh, his father is dead and i don't know he, he starts out the author's page with if you are related to me, please, for the love of God, do not read this book. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what I should have done. But my mother's still alive, and she reads all of me. She reads everything I do. So yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to deliver a PG version. And so Adam Parfy for years asked me to write a memoir, and I didn't want to do it because of that. But then when he died, Christina came after me and said listen, nobody wants to hear about your filthy sex life. I go, oh yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> and it was clear that that's the story I really wanted to tell. But she said, no, no, before that, all that stuff happened, you were associated with Ginsburg, with Ferlinghetti, with Anton LaVey, with Charles Manson, with John Wayne Gacy, you know, with killers and poets. And they should maybe write about that. Bill Bill Clinton, people might be interested with about that. I was like, yeah, okay, maybe. So I can go from birth to 27, 28 and probably write a pretty good book on it. So that's what I've done. 
it's, it's a luxury that probably won't be afforded to people of the generations after you, man, because nothing that they've done is ever going to leave them. That's the that's the price of the internet, you know. Yeah, 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 and and that's that's also something that's realized as well, right? That I mean, when the creation of Google and the internet and the World Wide Web has made it progressively harder for me to actually be employed, you know, if you can imagine before that, I'd come home from a tour or come home from some shows or probably an interview with some shady character and people at work would say, what did you do this weekend? And I could say gardening and they would believe it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, <laughs> but now at this point, you know, I've very distinctly lost jobs. I know because I, there was a job, uh, Tony Hawk's brother had offered me a job at the university that I went to. Right. And it was like Friday. You will have the offer. You could start on Monday and clearly somebody in HR went to the internet between Friday and Monday and typed in Eugene Robinson. And by Monday, they just ghosted me, right? So any hunches and what it was that uh, lost you? <laughs> well, you type my, well, you go to Google and type in my name and the first one on the first page is this piece written by Mary Spacuza uh, for the, for the SF weekly or the, I think that was a publication, Eugene Robinson chokes rowdy concert goers. It's like, Jesus Christ. You know, that was a revenge. She didn't write that headline. She was cool and sort of ended up being a friend, but the guy who was editor in chief then was a, not, not a fan. And I, that, with that headline single-handedly doomed me to a certain level of unemployment. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a lie. It's not a lie. So what can I say? But it's not like I've done that when I worked at Intel or Apple or Adobe yeah. and, and these are places that I worked, you know, successfully pre pre internet. Yeah. There's context. Of course. Yeah, there's always context. Um, yeah. I mean, an, another thing that struck me when you were talking there is uh, something I'd read you mentioned in a couple of interviews was about the, well, it's a quote that's attributed to Albert Speer, although I know you know that he sort of misappropriated it himself. And it's that yes. theory of theory of ruin about how buildings in decline should always be the best version of themselves at any Correct. point. Um, how does that apply to what you're saying about the, the coming to terms with yourself for the journal? Uh, the in, memo? In, in general, I mean, I've really, I've really tried to do that. I think it's an obligation to, uh, to myself at the very least. And also I'm a vain man. Right? <laughs> so, so like I decided maybe 10 years ago that I was going to say, stop going to high school reunions because I wasn't learning stuff at the high school reunions that was going to make me happy about myself. And that's that, you know, that my time on the planet is aggressively limited based on the looks of these people around me who appear to be on death's door. You know, I mean, I'm doing jujitsu seven days a week. And typically I'm, I remember right before we left on tour, I was fighting. I had three, three rounds in a row with these guys. And I realized that all of their ages didn't total my age. (laughs) Yeah, no, but it is, uh, you can trick your body into some kind of state of permanent, both youthfulness and usefulness by, by doing stuff like this. But I, 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 I think the whole idea of going gently into this good night is, uh, is a crock of shit. I'm not, there's nothing gentle about it and I refuse to do it. So of course I can't walk now, but <laughs> yeah, oh, there's that to pay too, but whatever. I get some cortisone shots. I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Dylan Thomas did not have the answer there, did he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're going to drink yourself. You get write one fantastic piece of work and then kill yourself. No, that's not the plan. <laughs> uh, so just to skim over some of these projects, man, cause there's so much that you've done. Whipping boy, we mentioned. A 
whole, whole series of albums. I noticed in one thing you said that the final Whippin' Boy EP, Crow, was your personal lowlight of your recorded output. Is that still true? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was when I, I I thought like where I was confused about democracy and how it worked with the creative process, you know, um, and uh, I had a discontented band member and I was like, look, you know, I, I want to keep things go along to get along. I want to make this guy feel invested. I wanted him to have some sort of buy in. So I let him design the cover. I didn't like the cover, you know, um, the music on the record is fine, but the artistic stuff around it was just uh, miserable and hateful for me. And I was like, this, this can't be, you know, it, it doesn't have to be fascism with one person calling the shots, but this trying to appease somebody to build up his sense of himself because everybody, everybody's afraid to hurt his feelings. No, you can't, you can't do that. I I've actually thrown out a goodly portion of those records. Cause of course it was put out by my record label, and you know moving from garage to garage and i was like i'm not going to try to sell these i don't care to sell these i maybe i should redo the cover and then in a fit of peak i just threw them all out i think i have like 10 left <laughs> just for <laughs> historical reasons Fuck it it was a, it was an abortion never should have happened I can understand the motivation behind it. You know, you, you do want to try and reel somebody back into the enthusiastic stage, go back to that honeymoon period <clears throat> by tossing the bone to them in this way. But you know, somebody somebody said about a girlfriend that I had when I was eighteen. He said that she's the kind of person that's going to be vaguely discontented with every with something for the rest of her life. And of course, he said that about her when I went out with her at 18. I'm still in touch with her and she's 61 now and he's exactly on the money. <laughs> <laughs> he was not wrong at all, even though he's out of his mind. He was not wrong at all. So, yeah, this, you know, th and this so this guy who I'm talking about, same kind of thing. He's about the same age, still kind of poking around, trying to trying to convince himself in the world that he's creative somehow and, and not doing such a great job of it. So. Mm -hmm. struggling to find his relevance a little bit yeah i mean he's been successful in the corporate world but you know he's a, a dreamer and uh you know i mean you know he he part of the, how he ended the band he he got the day that we were practicing wrong he said he thought we were practicing saturday so when we get there sunday he's left a note you guys were assholes i quit and we were just we were all like just thank god to be unburdened with this guy and years later <laughs> Like four years later, he came to see us play and complained to Dan, who was now Oxbow's bass player, but had been Whipping Boy's drummer. And he was like, well, you, you guys should have tried harder to keep me in the band. It's like, what are you, your fucking girlfriend? No, you quit. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the parallels there are frightening, man. That's sort of, yep. you, didn't, you didn't try hard enough. So. Yeah, yeah. It's like, that's what some woman said to me, actually. She said, you know, you're a fighter. You spent all your time fighting. But when, you know, when I dumped you, you didn't try to fight for, I was like, no, not my personal life. You want to go, you should go. That's clearly a better place for you to be. Well, just skimming across some of the side projects and collaborations as well, Eugene, because there's fucking loads of them. Dead Kennedys, obviously, back in the day. You actually mentioned not wanting to piss off husbands about <laughs> wives that you've slept with. I know you've got previous regards to one of the Dead Kennedys on that front. That didn't seem to work out so badly, right? 
Oh yeah, that that, <laughs> that uh, Klaus's wife. Yeah, yeah, that Klaus was kind of joking, but you know what are the chances, man? He it actually he said in the aftermath he was like I'm I'm disappointed in both of you because <laughs> you know we met at the Mud Club, which was. I don't know what his problem was with the mud club. I thought it was a fairly cool place to meet somebody. I mean, I was 17, you know. Um, you also, you mentioned, is it J uh, Jamie uh, from Juju? Is that right? Yeah. We, we yeah, just, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. You collaborated with them. You collaborate with the band Capricorns. I've seen a couple of times. Um, That's right. A, a band called This Side of Jordan that I'm not familiar with. A French band. That's Philippe uh, Thinfane from that band Helio Gobal, oh, and ac actually okay. the, the the bigger band M M eighty three. He was a, a guitar player for M eighty three. That's right. So that was a side project that he did. We actually toured on that. So that was cool. Cool. I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, uh, he collaborated with Todd, who are now no more. Sadly, uh, Banford down south, wasn't it? Um, the Manatees, who have put on yes. actually in Glasgow, really good band. Yep. Um, Old Man Carlisle, Gloom. Carlisle, that's right, the Brickyard. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, Old Man Gloom, amazing yep. band. Uh, band. Did you work with them when Caleb was still here? Yeah, yeah, when yeah. he was alive for that that record that they Christmas, but they they killed me in the mix. I think they I think they just put me in because they didn't want to hurt my feelings. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think what I contributed was what they wanted. So. <laughs> Uh, uh, another one is Strings of Consciousness. I'm not familiar with that one, man. Uh, that's Philippe Petit from Marseille. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's done a bunch of them. That was, we did uh, Last of the Dead Hot Lovers with him and uh, uh chapel in the pines that was with me and percy howard who played on that bill laswell record uh, from his record label material i looked over jordan what do i see for the carry so yeah, yeah, good, good for you to find that one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and one that I think is really interesting, you collaborated with Black Sun, who just so happens from Glasgow. I happen to know pretty well, Russell uh, McEwen, also in a band called Macrocosmica for a long time. You guys crossed paths, I think it was Roadburn in 2009, and then just hooked yep. up for a recording on the album. There's yeah, it was, it was great to read the, the live reviews of that. People were like, oh, we were just having such a great stony time at, at, at Roadburn. And then at the end of uh, Black Sunset, Eugene came out and told a horrible story <laughs> and, and roached everybody's buzz. That was pretty That was pretty fantastic. I could feel it happening as I was doing it. It was pretty wonderful. It's just the energy leaving the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not even. It was just, just changing the temperature of the room, you know. 
it was not a cheery story, but it was from it was from my book, uh, Lancelot's Screw. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. We'll, we'll cycle back round to your books. Actually, I want to talk about some of the other ones as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think it's true, right? But maybe you can um, illuminate a wee bit here. You almost reformed Black Flag, haha, <laughs> with blackface, which was shit canned by uh, Mr. Hardcore himself, Ian Mackay, who Chuck had some concerns about it. Chuck Dukowski from Black Flag. That this is before. There were eight black flags, but the plan was to do his black flag songs as well as his unreleased black flag songs and to and to put them on a record. And we're going to call a, a name he suggested, Blackface, which I thought was great. And probably the only circumstance in which he could have named a Blackface would be with me singing. And he, we used the same typeface for Black Flag. And uh, Petty Bond was even online to do some of the artwork since he doesn't get along with his brother Greg and it was pretty perfect. And then I think we recorded four songs, released two of them. And then Ian was like, hey man, I don't know if you should be doing a record called Blackface. And Chuck was like, well, what should we call it? And he says, well, what should you call it uh, Black Velvet? which is totally not not totally not the same thing yeah. and then chuck got for a number of different reasons got cold feet and you know we were going to play support for iggy pop at the off festival in poland and and they were going to pay us like nineteen thousand dollars for it and he <laughs> and he bailed he was like and and also we were going down to la to do these black flag practices so which is like eight hours of fucking practice i mean oxbow we're not doing eight hour practices you know <laughs> it's madness so i was kind of i was kind of he started to explain and he called me to say he wasn't going to do it and i just stopped him and i was like i you know in my personal life anytime somebody's wanted to dump me i was like okay and the conversation hopefully I, I hope the conversation ends there i don't need to be explained so that's i've never really talked to him about it. he said i don't want to i don't think it's that and i okay and that was that. So, but the record we did come out at least with a seven inch and a few stickers. So there was that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I don't want to put you in a, a spot here, or you know, ask you to play favorites. But of some of those collaborations I've mentioned, are there any that just stick out really fondly as a personal favorite? Well, um, yeah, yeah, they were they were all pretty cool for different different reasons. I mean, the guys in uh, Conifer. You know, they flew me out to Maine, and so I got to hang out with them for a bunch of days, and I'm big into seafood, so the food was great. I had a great time. Same with the guys in Black Sun. They they flew me out to uh, Glasgow, and I, I lived staying at Kevin's house a couple of times at Kevin's house, stayed there, so I had a great, great time with that one. Um, uh, Jamie Stewart and Juju, the, the Salminio thing we did, that was fantastic. And we toured on that and Jamie's such a great guy. I really enjoyed touring with him and hanging out with him. So, um, even though when I, when, it's funny, man, I just read his memoir and I go, fuck, how do, how we've been friends this long and I'm a sex addict and he's a sex addict. But this never came into play when we toured together. <laughs> right? Like it never, it never came up. Like, like, hey, the show's over. What do we do now? We just kind of went back to the hotel and went to sleep, you know. But, uh, but that's happened over the course of time. Like when I was in, you know, New York hardcore, everybody just because I was physically fit, just assumed that I was straight edge. So when they would go off to get high, 
they would either hide it from me, conceal <laughs> it from me, or just like try not to tell me. And it's like, fuck, I know you guys are high. Why don't you invite <laughs> me along? But they just thought I was, you know, because I was physically, I was like this dad figure. So they just kind of left me out. So maybe that's what, what it was. So yeah, I've, I've, I've had a lot of good ones. I have only had one negative one. And that's with a band, and I should have seen it coming, who said, we want you to sound like a cross between Axl Rose and Phil Anselmo. <laughs> I thought that was a challenge, and I didn't realize they were serious, and that's exactly what they wanted. So I recorded a whole record for these guys, like eight songs, wrote the lyrics, and they got it, and I never heard from them ever again. Wow. Well, like, ever again. Like, never. Like, now, I don't even know where the, I, I can't even remember those guys' names. They were really like, they wanted me to come to Fresno and hang out. And I don't know if you know anything about California, but Fresno is really like, it's a fucking hole in the ground. You don't really want to be there. So I'm like, I'm not going to go have beers with you in Fresno. That's craziness. <laughs> and how about near misses that we don't know about, man? I mean, that that's obviously one of them, but were there any you really wanted to do that didn't happen? Or were there any that you even just had your eye on, like somebody you wished you'd been able to collaborate with that maybe... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I read about you saying that you feel you should have her phone number, but somehow you don't. Is that right? Yeah, good for you. You've really done your research, <laughs> both her and Bjork. I, I think I think that, that the, the future necessarily it involves us doing something together. And I actually got close to trying to get something with PJ Harvey as well. And they, you know, but, you know, they're, they're buffers around these folks. So I did that never worked out. So yeah, Bjork and PJ Harvey, that would be completely wild. Like, I would be yeah, so yeah, up for that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I asked Diamanda and I got I got a lot further with that. Wow. But, Ultimately, yeah. you know, in the Thin Black book, I put her quote there, which cracked me up. She's ended up saying, your voice sucks, your band sucks, <laughs> and you have small hands. So, so. <laughs> So that, no. was, that was the end of that. <laughs> we we uh we did a an episode on Diamanda Galas actually before, and that that just seems so fucking on on brand. So that's, that's perfect. No, man. no, I I I, I, I love Diamanda. I, I I I wish she still talked to me. She does not, however. <laughs> that would be a sensational collaboration, man. I do agree with that. It would have been, but you know, she doesn't. She doesn't really work with other other vocalists. So that's the thing I realized after after I had asked. But uh, so. Talking about vocals, man, I mean, obviously, your voice has changed quite a bit across a whole load of these bands, you know, through Whipping Boy, Oxbow, Budwell, and some of the side stuff as well. You know, there's bits of it quite feverish, bits of it a lot of spoken words, sullen, brooding. Um, I think Symphony in Red, for example, had a, a lot of stuff I would probably compare to, like Al Johnson from um, US Maple <laughs> and Shorty, that kind of stuff. And then there's things like there's things on Let Me Be a, uh, Let Me Be a Woman that I think reminded me of William S. Burroughs. And then oh. I heard much of his spoken word stuff. Um, yeah. Do you feel any of the particular voices that you've taken on were more cathartic or, or natural than others? I mean, also you mentioned, you know, the limitations of the human body. As you get older, have you gravitated towards a way of singing that's sustainable for you now? No, I've just I've I've made my body you know, 
better suited to answer the di dictates of, of of my soul, right? So it's not a, a question of changing to bring it down, but increasing the standards for both organizations. But no, I haven't. I haven't. Um, my sister, who's a, who's a Grammy-winning singer, has given me hints, um, but they involve like color theory, right? <laughs> Which is really great, like you know, green and blues, and you like meditate on greens and blues. And she's huge; like she plays in front of sixty thousand people in Croatia and so on. I'm going to see her at the end of this tour in Istanbul, where she lives now. But she won a Grammy for uh, this 2007 song with Stephen Marley, Bob Marley's kid. It was a summertime dance hit called Dance Dance. So uh, she's my younger sister, but I, I take her 100% seriously. So, but yeah, no, I've not, I've not made any alterations to accommodate the aging process. This <laughs> is, you know, either with stage. So I, I've just amped it. You know, I'm doing jujitsu seven days a week. I'm running, um, and now I'm doing CrossFit, throwing that into the mix as well. So I pretty much. I'm now in a position where I, you know, through core strength and just general physical fitness, can actually make it do things I couldn't even make it do 30 years ago. So, yeah. So the physical thing in your mind is really, really related to the vocal performance as well. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's definitely not something you see discussed in like <laughs> in relation to Axel Rose, for example, to bring him back up again, man. Yeah, yeah they they don't. I mean, you know, this is it's. You know, we know we got shows and we all start to prepare like month, months out. It's not, you know, I mean, even if it, it, like with Jamie and Juju, um, the Salminio thing, it was largely pretty stationary. It wasn't as physical as, say, Bunuel, but it's still you still had to prepare, sharpen the mind, you know, so um, it's not a casual process. So when, you know, we're back, we played some festival, the Door Festival, and there was a British band that we're sharing a backstage with. What is that band that was named after a car that was hot shit for a period of time? A Datsun? Is there a band? Oh, the Datsuns? The Datsuns. Yeah. So the guy, we're sitting at the table about to eat, and the guy comes over and stands behind me. And I figured, no, oh, he's getting kind of friendly. I don't know what's happening here. There's a, there's a plant behind me. And he starts undoing his zipper. And it's pretty clear to me that he intends to piss in this plant. And I said, if I see your penis, I'm going to beat you to death. <laughs> and he's like, what? I go, you got a potted plant on your side of the room. You want to piss in it? You piss in that one. You piss in this one, you're going to be waking up in the hospital. And the guy was like, got all offended and like walked off. And I'm like, come on, come on. What do you, you know, you guys have bought this rock and roll myth from, from the, you don't have to do this. You wouldn't do this at home, you know? So, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm approaching this the way maybe a Jackson Pollock would or you have to be physically able to make this shit happen and if you don't i really don't have time for you you know i don't like to i i mean it's important for me to not after all this time not feel like the songs i'm doing like i'm not a i'm not a, doing an oxbow cover band right i'm not doing a Boonwell cover band yeah. and these are new living breathing you know organisms so um you need to act accordingly well it's like I think sport it, isn't it it's like every 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 sports person has to quit at some point because the flesh is weak but the mind is willing you know and it just yep. you need you need to accommodate for that and 
Axel Rose is a good example because you see Guns N' Roses now and you're like, what the fuck are they doing? Yeah, they're not, they are not fit to do this anymore. What, what, what's the yeah. point? You know? Yeah. I totally yeah, get I mean, that. If you just, if you just want our money, just give me a dad. I can PayPal you the money, but otherwise <laughs> leave us alone. Don't make us sit through these shows that you're clearly not interested in doing and not fit to do. So, I mean, I think it seemed obvious at the time and it seems even more obvious in hindsight that the Datsuns, for example, were always an Ikea band. They weren't built to last. They were meant to, yeah. you, were me you were meant to wear them out and then throw them away and just get yeah. a new one. They're not, an, yeah. they're not a lifetime thing. But I guarantee you the people who signed them are still working. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, which, means, which means they're still drawing paychecks. So, mm. Whereas those guys are probably definitely not. Um, just a personal indulgence here, Eugene. I know <laughs> from your backstory, and you, you maybe mentioned this in, in the memoir, you're, you got into Kiss pretty early on, didn't you? Fuck, man, your, your accent's killing me. Say it on <laughs> I feel like I'm in Glasgow. I don't know we're both speaking English, but say it, what was slower, baby? You got into Kiss pretty early, didn't you? Yeah, you oh, Kiss. Kiss. Yeah. Kiss. Yes, yes, sorry. Yes, I, I, Kiss was the first. That was my, I got radicalized when I was 13 years old. I mean, I write about that in the memoir where uh, my friend David was like, I, I read about their connection to Satan. I was like, yeah, I got, I got to hear this. <laughs> and, which at this point, and they were from Brooklyn as well, not too far from where I grew up. So I was like, yeah, I got it. So he gave me Destroyer, which I thought was a great record, right? So Yeah, Peter, Peter Chris, he's a, he's a Brooklyn kid, right? Yeah, all those guys are from Brooklyn. They're all, all right, from yeah. out on Ocean Parkway. So um, I lived in Flatbush, so which is like maybe, I don't know, seven, eight minutes from there by bus. So uh, I need your help settling a, a long rumbling debate on this show. Uh, Kiss are better than Motley Crue, aren't they? Um, mm, no. Oh, oh, for fuck's sake. Self-inflicted wind that was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, and I, I talk about this before. Like, I, I'm not a huge Motley fan, Motley Crue fan, but they are, in my mind, a much more honest band than, say, like Fugazi, and which makes them, in my mind, a much more honest band than Kiss. I mean, Kiss took the makeup off, and then they did. They were not Kiss, you know. But Motley Crue was a hundred percent Motley Crue each and every time, you know. I mean, they were writing songs about what they were doing, <laughs> right? Whether they were when they were living in Riverside or when they were hanging out at strip clubs in Vegas. This is precisely there was no pretense. There was a one to one correlation with what they did and what they wrote about. So, um, you know, Kiss was an act. You know, Motley Crue was not, you know, Fugazi to a certain degree, you listen to them, you don't know much about the people who make that music, but you know a lot about Motley Crue. It's not a lot to know, but you know a lot about <laughs> Motley Crue from listening to Motley Crue. So again, I'm a bigger Kiss fan, but I think Motley Crue is a more honest uh, uh, effort. So, Authentic and authenticity. Authentic. Have, That's yeah. a, uh, correct. That's yeah. a, the best word. Yeah. It's a, it's a fucking good answer. It's unwelcome, but it's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, I'm a bigger Kiss fan, but the reality of it is, you know, Kiss was an act. So, I, you know what? Actually, this brings another conversation to mind here, Max. I know you're a big Gang of Four fan, and yes. this, one of the things about them that I've read that you really liked was their the, they had a middle class art student sincerity. They didn't feign sort of working class credentials. Yeah, uh, they they didn't look for credibility by pretending otherwise. You know, yeah. But yeah you pointed out as well though uh, that they still were facing down Nazi gangs at their concerts. Still yep. a, a real scene uh, in, in those days. So I guess you've you've borne witness to the evolution of the punk rock scene, I think, as closely as many people will speak to. Where Where is punk rock at 
for you right now? Is the passion in the politics that used to be represented still able to find an outlet or is it neutered or am I just being a curmudgeon? Well, no, we just played a show last night in, uh, in Hamburg and there were two venues in one and the venue upstairs was, it was a hardcore show. And ours was a punk rock show. Let's call it punk rock. And these guys were old enough to have been there the first time around. And it was, it was I had a tantrum last night and did not sit at the meal table with them because I got tired of getting a, a, the, my 18th vegan fucking meal. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but you know, they were, the drummer said, yeah, they were talking. And it was just, I kind of wonder what they think about. Now I've got people like I'm friends with the guys in agnostic front and have been, I mean, I was at their first practice, you know, wow. uh, or sleeping in the back of their first, uh, the practice room of the first practice. And I love what those guys are doing, that they're the standard bearers for what, you know, New York hardcore and they're still doing it, but they're doing it successfully. These guys are playing above us in a, you know, in the, the, the club, upstairs from where we were playing last night and you know <laughs> i mean he's 60 years old yeah i think it's artistically null and void at this point you know um i remember going to tony from fat records and saying hey why don't you put out an oxbow record and he said oxbow is not punk enough and it was clear to me that oxbow that the punk the punk had become a genre from which we were excluded which means it was not a living and breathing thing anymore you know it was a nostalgia act so unless you were there originally like agnostic front or like you know i'm good friends with harley and the Cro-Mags, and you this is your thing to me it's it's a weird kind of mimicry so you know to have a discussion about Punk, there's no such thing as punk politics. This is, this is punk posturing at this point now. Because if they were going to be effective in terms of upending the system, they probably would have done it in the past 40 years, you know? Yeah. Whereas, like, somebody like me or Oxbow, I mean, all our punk bona fides are, you know, historical artifacts, but they influence everything that we do. You know, my last boss now, who's actually looking at a prison term, when I was at Ozzy, uh, this digital online publication, he said about me famously, he goes, you know, I can't tell whether Eugene doesn't give a shit or it's just acting like he doesn't give a shit. And the reality of it is what he was coming face to face with was punk rock. Mm-hmm. You know, shorn of context, I wasn't sitting in an office in a mohawk, you know, giving him a hard time. It was just now built into my personality. You know, it's like, just because you say it, I got to believe it. No, fuck you. No. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, punk as an attitude, yeah, fine. But punk as an artistic genre at this point, I, I'm not I'm not believing in it. Yeah, that's interesting because I mean, we've spoken about this and picked away at it in previous episodes. The idea of punk being divergent musically, I don't really buy into it. I think more yep. that punk was divergent in the sense that there were many sounds that went on to become more easily replicable and and commercial. Meanwhile, there was was an attitude that was not in any way easy to market, and that attitude was kind of sidelined by the industry. So punk has diverged in terms of spirit and in terms of this textbook sound. So I think... You know what I've always found curious? I've always found curious that hardcore never really took off in the UK. And I've never been able to figure out why. When Black Flag went to play the UK, they got massive amounts of grief bad brains i understood because you got really good reggae in the uk so when the bad brains came maybe and played reggae it was like yeah this is substandard reggae fuck you so but you know there were a lot of bands that were huge like fear circle jokes and they never really hit big in the uk i was always mystified yeah. by that there's a lot of hardcore bands in the uk just now that, now yeah no yeah the time yeah, yeah. um yeah. It was, yeah definitely difficult you know I agree, but at the same time, that that hardcore now is basically mimicry of the hardcore yes. previously. I'm, yes. I'm, not, I'm not saying it's invalid, but it's yeah. not. You know, hardcore then was a pioneering art form, whereas hardcore yep. now is a copy of a pioneering art right. form. Right. But you get it. It's weird. We played in Japan, and like the Japanese hardcore scene, those guys are like 
fucking into it. Like, you know, we were laughing at some t-shirt they had that said, it no game, you know? So it's like, they, it's like they're 100% into it, so. I mean, it, it, it reminds me of another anecdote that you've spoken about, you know, talk, like genres that are easy to replicate as opposed to being pioneering. They're just, there's like a kind of off-the-shelf template that you can sort of get. You, you had a thing about speaking to Mogwai at Supersonic in 2007 backstage, and uh, you, ah. you were talking about how instrumental music sort of needs a focal point first of all do you think that left a mark because they've started adding a lot of vocals into their tracks and now they've got a number one album but um... yeah exactly exa well you know the, the funny thing is when we played supersonic this year <laughs> one of the first people i saw was Stuart. he was like ah eugene i was like ah so yeah i mean he understood that it, it was not delivered mean spirit mean, it was just me thinking about music and and thinking about music the way you see i think about journalism you know, there's a journalistic truism that people like to look at people. If you have a magazine cover, because you could put a skateboard on the cover or you could put a face and a skateboard, you'd be better off putting the face in the skateboard, right? Yeah. So I think they came to agree with me. And, you know, and he, I've done an article on him and we kind of have been, I used to be friends with his ex-wife. And so, you know, and he does martial arts. So we, we yeah. but that, that one, yeah, they were sitting at the table glowering at me. <laughs> it was like, I had, I've had that sensation before. I never, I remember being over at Lydia's house and, and Fetus came in when they were together. And I guess he was drinking and was angry with me, but I didn't figure it out until later because I just never took it seriously. <laughs> like, you know, he had some weapon in his hand. I was like, oh, cool. And I took the weapon out of his hand and I'm like dancing around the room. <laughs> so I've that hostility from other artists I've never taken seriously because I'm just, a, I mean, you know, you might be able to sense it now. I'm pretty straight shooter at why when I did the, uh, London Jazz Festival with Barry Adamson and insulted Nick Cave. It's just like, I guess Nick Cave didn't know me well enough to know it was just me. I wasn't trying to minimize his contribution. I just said, man, if you've been able to sing the song that he sang for Barry, which was Next by Scott Walker, but which is really a cover of Jacques Brel's Au Suivant, yeah. if he had done it in French, that would have fucking blown me away. And that's what I said. He just looked at me, <laughs> turned on his heels, walked off, and has never spoken to me again. <laughs> It's yeah. ironic because birthday party is one of the most common comparisons drawn with Oxbow as well. Right? Exactly, which was, yeah. I was I was actually upset. I'm such a huge fan that I didn't want to alienate the guy in the first 15 minutes of talking to him. But apparently, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so, um, uh, sorry, slight tangent here, but let me just bring in some of my external reading. Just so happens I've been looking at uh, this research they've been doing between traditionally Western uh, subjects and Eastern subjects on paintings, and they've been mapping their eyes when people look at new paintings, and it's seems that Western subjects, traditionally Western subjects, focus on figures. So if the painting has a figure, they can follow the map of the eyes and it focuses very, very much around the figure. Whereas persons of Eastern descent focus on the, the fuller image. And it seems that this actually works for different forms of art as well. So music as well. People from the West are more focused on a central theme, like a, a vocal or a lyric or a central <laughs> narrative. Whereas Eastern audiences are more appreciative of an ambient texture or a wider work in general. So I think there's probably some truth to like what you're saying about people needing a focal point, certainly within where we grew up, where all of us grew up in the Western musical sense. Well, that's, inter that's interesting, especially if you consider that it seemed to me that Mogwai's some of their earlier and more significant successes happened like in the East, right? That's true, I, yeah. I, first, I first read about them in a Japanese publication. They flirted with Japanese artwork on the covers yeah. of Young Team and stuff like yeah. that as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah apparently that's, that's been quite consistently upheld in research on, on how people consume art based on the, that's cool. the sides of that's the That's cool. That's cool. I did not know that. That's cool to know.
But yeah, sorry, talking, going back to what we we're saying about kind of off the shelf kind of models of things. I mean, I think we've spoken a bit about post rock being a little bit of an easy thing to just lift off the shelf and replicate sometimes. There's there's room for the emperor to have no clothes. Do you think like punk rock has become something like that? It's very easy to just get the template right to the template. You don't have to actually be breaking any ground on it. Well, look, 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 you could be, you could be a jam band right? You could be a jam band and people might be able to draw a, a, a connection between you and the Grateful Dead, but it doesn't have to be mimicry, right? Uh, I mean, if I'm listening to Scratch Acid or Jesus Lizard or any of the, the 90s bands that had, you know, punk and hardcore antecedents, they, to me, are, are way more punk rock than anybody on, on any warped tour. And yet, you know, bad religion is like... You know, the shit, right? They're the punk rock, you know, standard bears and all that, all that Southern California kind of uh, Orange County stuff, shattered faith, middle class, uh, you know, bad religion. I never, I never really dug them. It never really felt like either hardcore or punk rock to me. But that is, I mean, mostly because their antecedents were probably mainstream, given they're closest to LA, mainstream rock. And that's kind of what I was trying to get away from. So punk as it exists now, I mean, I think Odd Future, you know, maybe is closer in spirit to being punk than, you know, and it was clear. I mean, some of the early hip hop groups were clear, like Onyx were clearly, clearly affected by what they were seeing on Lower East Side. You know, there were not, when I was shaving my head in 1980, the numbers of black guys who were shaving their heads in 1980 was zero. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, Onyx came out and were open to that cross-pollinization. It made them, in my mind, a lot more punk rock than, you know, than, again, anybody on the warp Tour. But, you know, punk rock, like you said, has become a brand now. So, Yeah, um, I think some of the most punk rock things that are out there are ones that are really able and willing to incorporate other influences. And I think hip hop's a good analogue for that because they've always, that genre of music has always been very open to incorporating other kinds yeah. and other forms of music just to keep it fresh, yeah. keep it alive, you know. Um, also, also, they're interesting cautionary tales. Had punk rock been really successful, as successful as hip hop has been, <laughs> I think that we would have seen the same sort of excesses. So despite the high flown ideals about, you know, smash the state, fuck the government and all that. I think you introduce Rolls Royce into the mix and people are doing the same sort of <laughs> shit regardless. And I'm not any different, man. If Roxbow was successful enough for me to personally afford a Rolls Royce, I'd be sitting in, the, not on a toilet in this interview, but I'd be sitting <laughs> in my hot tub in a, in a fur coat, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to actually address that. For anybody listening to the show that's wondering why Chris suddenly put on a very short plate reverb, I didn't. Eugene moved into a tiled bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the band room started to get full of band folks. So, um, can we cycle around to your writing a little bit, Eugene? Yes, sir. Um, so, uh, one quote I really want to put out here as well, because it just contextualizes your, I think, your entire kind of back catalogue of stuff. My audience for my writing has always only been me, and I've never ever needed validation regarding my writing. Now, I read that in the context of talking about your stepdad, about how and and your and your mom. Your mom was very supportive. Your stepdad could be hypercritical of your writing at points. Like, how how did that influence the the way you wrote, man? 
Oh, it didn't long, man. I, I was, it was like a, like a bullet, <laughs> you know, as soon as I could, as soon as I was able to write, I began to write. I even have, I, and I recently found it again, my first query letter, Esquire magazine. I must have been, I don't know, 10 years old, man. And they rejected me, but, you know, they wrote back and signed it. So it was like a real letter and I kept it. And the thing is, I, you know, I, my stepfather, my mother's second husband from so when, from the time I was five or six, and then they got divorced when I was 18. You know, he was a working award-winning journalist, but I saw him struggle, right? I mean, he was always fighting with some editor or another on the phone, like they were chopping up his pieces and it was... It was labor for him. And um, for me, it was it made sense. Right. Look, his family, they were they were friends with F. Scott Fitzgerald. So I can see if you're if that's your standard, you know, it might fuck up how you approach your own efforts. But the reality of it is, you know, outside of the few great books that he's written, F. Scott Fitzgerald is not a success story in my mind because he got seduced away by Hollywood where he underperformed and then did nothing. Right. So there was a lot of, you know, wanting to be and not being, which was never uh, with my stepfather. That was never part of, never part of my thing. I, I don't think, so I'll give you an example. Um, I remember he started taking karate when I was a kid and karate had hit big and I was super excited about it. And he got to yellow belt and he was training with this guy, Masoyama, who was like a famous Japanese guy or one, or maybe Masoyama's, uh, that's two names, M-A-S-O-Yama. And maybe one of his main students. And then he, one day he, I said, hey, why don't you karate? And he was like, oh, I'm, I'm tired of doing it. don't want to do it. <laughs> and it's like, not, nah, man, I've been doing, I've been going seven days a week to jujitsu, uh, except for times I'm on tour for 12 years. <laughs> 12 years. I'm 61 years old, man. And I'm going seven days a week. So our, our, our angles of attack are completely different. And I was the same way about writing. You know, um, I, I, nobody could own own the experience, you know, um, out from under me. It was an impossibility. And there are people who I recognize, you know, who I can who I read, like, say, a Martin Amos. And I think half the people reading him don't understand how fucking great he is. And there's this, this Polish woman writer, Olga Tomaszuk, who I'm sure I'm mispronouncing her name. Uh, we would drive our plows over the bones of the dead. I just finished that on tour. Phenomenal. I mean, like, I think the average person reading this has no idea how good they are. Um, and those are the people who I'm writing for. Can I, <laughs> you know? can and my name is actually, he and I were in contact right before he died. And then he wow. mostly ran to turn me down for an interview, which is what I really wanted to do. I was going to ask, do you have a, do you have a favorite by him? For me, I, I love Coba the Dread. That's the one that just absolutely. That's a great book. Um, Money was the first one uh, that I read by him that uh, I loved, but um, I would have to say Time's Arrow. I've only read London Fields. Yeah, London Fields is phenomenal too. The information, I've read them all. Like with Cormac McCarthy, I kind of, I dug him and then I think I read Child of God and then I was like, yeah, you know, I could see behind the curtain. I could see the strings. I was like, ah, I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to be a big Harry Cruz fan and then he hit the body artist and I'm like, ah, I'm out. Uh, but with Martin Amos, I dug deep and I never got to the point where I was like, I'm out. There's nothing that he's written that I was unhappy with. So. Can you can you do us a favor? Can you repeat the name of the Polish writer just so people can actually source Olga those? Olga uh, Tomaszuk. Uh, so O L G A and Tomaszuk. I think it's T O M A C Z U K. 
Thanks, man. Um, I, I, I don't mean to pry, but do you I, think your stepdad's negativity was to do with his own frustrations? Think it was a bit yeah, of, of course. I mean, he did a chapter for some book, I remember, and I was like, oh, great, this will lead to other things, much like I thought with karate, that he'll get a black belt, but he just, uh, he's never pushed it. And he um, wrote, finished a book, finally, about astronauts, and he said, I'm going to crowdfund it, because I had already crowdfunded Thin Black Duke. I asked for, you know, we spent $50,000 on it. I said, most of you are going to fucking steal it. If you want to contribute some money, and people were like, oh, you're fucking begging for money. I was like, I don't give a shit. I'm begging for money. If you want to give, you can. If you don't, then don't. And But he had heard, oh, he remembered, I think, that I got $20,000 to write the fight book. And so he said, okay, I'm going to crowdfund my astronaut novel for $20,000 because that's what I need. And I go, you're never going to get that. And look, Oxbow has a pretty significant profile, and we only got $14,000, right? Mm -hmm. So, And I was happy to get it. But he, he went to one of those, like, Kickstarter, where if you don't get your twenty grand. You have to give it all back. Yeah. And yeah. so he, I think he got like, you know, he got like $3,000 and had to give it back. This is not an earnest effort, you know, but whatever. I mean, you know, I mean, I love him. So um, I, I wish he, his writing is good. I wish he had had more faith in his own abilities. Mm -hmm. Is it true that um, Fight got banned in some places? Some places. Fuck you, the UK. <laughs> hey man, um, Scotland. They, Come on. Okay. <laughs> Look, the, the, the head of HarperCollins UK. Oh man, it was such a drag. We were playing a show in Brussels, and I go backstage, and my phone rings, and it's my editor at HarperCollins US, and he says, "We need two more pages. Something kind of rough. Do you have anything?" And I go, yeah, there's that thing I did with the, the the Vietnamese knife fighters, you know, I could put that in. He goes, sure, put that in. So I put that in. We took the photos. The next day, he sent it in. He put it in. It was those two pages that got the, the book banned because who knew that there was a knifing problem there, right? And she said, we can put this book out if you're willing to go in front of parliament and explain why you did it. And now everybody's being stabbed, you know? <laughs> and I go, can the inner pages, so you couldn't take them out. And her, her last words to me were, too bad. We could have sold a million. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no there's no question that the UK, in particular in Scotland, actually had a really big knife problem, but I don't think that was on you. So. <laughs> well, you know, there was a tutorial <laughs> about how to best hold a knife, so I, I could understand her point, but come on. Yeah. Take out those pages. Put, some, put my face something. Help me, you know, but mm. no. Unfortunate, really sucks. Um, I, I, another quote that I really like by you, man, that I, maybe you can pass comment on, violence is like porno done poorly by most and unnecessarily by many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why when I get into fights, usually my, my wife said, she goes, it's funny. When she saw me beat some guy up in, in Brussels, she goes, you, you were smiling right before it happened. I think that's something that we'll need to know, that just because you're smiling, it doesn't mean good things are going to happen. <laughs> Usually, I was smiling because I said, I, I can't believe this guy really wants to do this with me. I spent all of my time doing this, you know, it's, and I gave him multiple chances to walk away. And then finally, I said, hey, is it really your desire that I strike you? And the guy, I was that articulate about it. The guy was like, do what you got to do. And I was like, Oh, you don't eat. <laughs> <laughs>
know. I, I don't know if a lot of people know this. I mean, it's become quite iconic that you put tape over your ears at shows, but it's you actually do that partly because one of your ears partially torn off during the fight. Is that right? Yeah, but yeah, that was terrible. That was a drag because it, it wasn't torn off by somebody's hands. It was torn off by a broken bottle. Um, but no, I, I put the tape on to keep the earplugs in. <laughs> yeah, if you still have problems, you don't it. want them to come out. So <laughs> yeah, I, I get sweaty and they pop out. And it's, then I then you know tinnitus is a serious issue. And you know I've been making music since 1980, so I got I got to save my hearing. Did did it that. cause any problems with your hearing after that that uh, scrap? After still, the it still does. Yeah. Because the doctor, I went through a shit ghetto fucking doctor who sewed the holes shut in my left ear. So it's I, I can't really put earbuds in there, and it gets infected more than the other ear, and you know. And then when I was doing MMA, some guy hit me in that ear, and because everything's smaller, so the balance went. I you know, so it, yeah, it's a drag. So another book that you brought out, the the inimitable sound of love, a threesome in four acts. Man, this is something I did not realize. At one point, you were like a sex advice columnist. Is that is that true? Fucking like for twenty years, man. I, I started. I started with at, at Code Magazine, this award-winning magazine called Code, a men's fashion magazine, and then Larry the Flint one, owned. Yeah, that's the one you started with Flint, isn't it? Yeah, that's a Larry Flint one, and because he, he does non-porn titles as well, so he sold that, and then I got hired by Mode Magazine, which was a magazine for plus-size women, <laughs> and it, the column was called Guy Spy. And then I got a Jewish newspaper in New York called the Jewish Blueprint after the mode thing ended, hired me to do this thing called Avi Baby. And then I did Ask Vinny for this. Uh, it was like a porn, like like the onion, but for the porn industry called Skull Game. <laughs> and, and then when I got to Ozzy, I did Sex with Eugene. So, yeah, I've done one, probably a sex column in one form or another for 20 plus years, you know. Is that is that a useful release valve? <laughs> well, you know, people think you're a lot more fun than you are, but you know, if you triangulate that with the Oxbow persona, I mean, largely anybody who's picked me up over the last, you know, bit of time, you know, it's like I got the e-ticket. It means anything could happen. So <laughs> it's, it's been it's been fairly liberating. Not good for a guy who's had problems with sex addiction, but uh, <laughs> you know, pretty good for the column. And it's really hard for me to be phased by stuff. In fact, in Jamie Stewart's book, he actually got phased me, which I was surprised. And he was. He was rimming this woman and he felt something in his mouth and I was already prepared. I was like, oh, he's got poop in his mouth. Big deal. And he said he looked on his tongue and it was a tapeworm. And I was like, ah, oh, come on, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll get you. Wanna... <laughs> OK, <laughs> so you, you, that's it. You win. <laughs> you know. Yeah, man. Jeez. And All the right. thing is, he just took the tapeworm out, threw it out, and kept on going. I was like, man, that no, guy's a, that guy's a pro. I could not me. You, know? <laughs> you need to you need to tie them to a stick, and then you need to coil them up, man. And that can be fucking yards. Yeah, man. Ay, 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 ay. But, yeah. At the, at the end of that, the moment is ruined, man. The mood is gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So my chronology is all over the shop here, man. But I do want to mention a long, slow screw. Seeing as we're talking about the books, two thousand and nine. Described as Mickey Spillane meets Quentin Tarantino by some people. Now, I actually uh, have a tie-in with this because when I was over in Bologna seeing um, Benuel, I had caught you doing the launch for Paternostra, the Italian translation of that before. That's cool. That's cool. You were at the bookstore, so you saw my kid, my youngest kid. There. Yeah, yeah. I actually asked you a question as well, man, but I think it was a pretty bad one. <laughs> 
So that's an Italian translation of a long, slow screw. Uh, it was at Modo Info Shop, I think it was. Um, and I think that little publishing house that you're working with, they're called Double Nickels, is that right? Yes. Yeah, yep. yeah. And it's um, run, the drummer of Baratro uh, is yep. co-runs Such a great little shop as well. Beautiful. Yep. And, and, and that's the second translation. The first one was in French for uh, Edition in Quilt. So that was pretty cool too. When was the French one, man? Because I know the, the Italian one's new. No, the French one was two years before the uh, the Italian one, and they couldn't get the wordplay in language-wise, so it's also called, called Paternostra. Um, and that one came closest. There was a director in France who wanted to do it as either a TV show or a TV series. He goes, you know, the French, we do funny movies and we do gangster movies, but we don't do funny gangster. You know, I was like, well, whatever, call me. We'll talk about it. And, you know, it never, it never amounted. You know, it's film. It's difficult, so... Yeah, French gangster movies are pretty fucking bleak. Okay, yeah. definitely yeah. confirm that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the thing, the thin black book. The kind of it's kind of like an Oxbow retrospective. Was it you described it as a cautionary tale of willful compliance, the failure yeah. of moral certitude, and the crypto musical <laughs> magnum opus of the seventh wonder of the world, Oxbow? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that. That's good writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get you're gonna get calls for a lot of pull quotes in the backs of things, man. Um, yeah. yeah, you well, okay, I can't I can't avoid it. You mentioned TV, so you hosted the Eugene Robinson show on Viva yeah, TV, Viva TV. On, on Viva TV. Wawa, Mark Sikora was the one who who just died. Sadly, uh, was the one who who made that happen. Um, but even before that, I mean, I think he knew about the beer commercial I'd done with Gus Van Sant, you know, and uh, as well as the worst movie of 1987 with Bill Cosby, Leonard, Leonard, Leonard Part Six. Yeah. <laughs> uh, were, were there seriously five Leonard movies before that? No, that was the first failed joke, you know. That, ah, that his, right. His, okay. Yeah, his missions were so secret that the first five ones you never heard about, right? Fucking hell, that is mad. I never liked the guy, and I wrote an article about it for GQ afterward, talking about what a piece of shit I thought Cosby was, and they were afraid to publish it. They were like, he's really powerful. We're going to get murdered, so sorry. And in the end, who was right? Yes. Uh, it's yeah. like John Lydon talking about Jimmy Savile. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he really pissed everybody off for that as well. No, I'm just Jimmy Savile, that guy. Just him, like William Casey, these guys who get out right before they get gotten. It makes me angry. Yeah. Can be shoehorned in a couple of other superb facts that you kind of made allusions to it at the start. Yeah. The, jo the John Wayne Gacy letters, man. John Wayne Gacy used to write to you from prison. Yeah, that was weird. I forgot about that. And I was cleaning out stuff from my ex wife's house. And because I, you know, I still got a bunch of my stuff over there, and I was like, "Who the fuck was writing me, calling themselves John Wayne Gacy?" And I was like, "Oh, oh yeah, that's right, John Wayne Gacy." <laughs> <laughs> so we were negotiating. He was wanting me to help him sell his paintings, and I was wanting an interview before he got fucking, you know, uh, killed. And it did, you know. So I had a bunch of letters from him. And they were very strange letters. I mean, he was really wanting to convince me that he was innocent. I was like, yeah, bro, whatever. I'm not going into your basement. I just, you don't need to impress me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? His origin story was really believable to me um, in that he picked up this guy and the guy walks into the bedroom after with the knife and he got panicked and re you know wrestled the guy and then the guy died in that exchange. But what he discovered at that point was that he had a raging erection and, and that the guy had just been making breakfast so, and he had come in to find out what he wanted with his eggs. 
That's why he had the knife in his hand. So I understood from both sides of it what kind of happened. But at the point where he had the erection like that, I also understood. I, I got attacked by a dog once. Um, and a dog, a pit bull latched onto my hand. And uh, I pulled a, I pulled a knife out because I thought like a person, a dog would see the knife and kind of go and run. But the dog didn't. So I stabbed the dog a bunch. And the dog still didn't let go. And I said, I got to stab it in the eyes. And I couldn't bring myself to stab it in the eyes because, you know, the eyes are so human. So after I stabbed the dog about eight times, it finally fucking let go and ran away. And then I grabbed my gun and shot it in the head. You know, I had to, my oldest kid was like three years old then. I couldn't have this dog in there. So I wrapped it up and put it in the trunk. And then I realized, you know, I couldn't deal with the experience. So I didn't really deal with his body in the trunk. So I left the dog in the trunk for like two days before it was getting kind of weird. And I finally got rid of it. But then also after that is when I got really into hunting. And I realized that it was me trying to work through what had happened. And I was a really unsuccessful boar hunter. That was my my game of choice, boar. And uh, I never caught one. I was a more successful uh, uh, goose hunter. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as soon as I kind of worked that through, I kind of moved on. But I guess Gacy got caught in that loop. <laughs> you know? And I was like, you can't, you know, once you discover what gives you an erection, it gets hard to get away from that stuff. <laughs> so I understood it. But you still got 33 dead bodies under your fucking house, bro. You got to go. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're flashing back to an alternate reality where I thought you were going to say the dog attacked you and you had an erection. So <laughs> yeah, so no, I, I was no, expecting no, that as well. No, no, <laughs> like, no, fuck, no, we have no, I, did, I, did, I did tell you when, when I was a kid, I broke into somebody's house, uh, not to steal anything, but to watch TV. I just, we broke into this guy's house and was watch TV. But the first time we broke in, I had an erection. And I was like, even at the age, I think I must have been nine. Even at that age, I was like, I got to watch this. <laughs> I gotta, this. You can't, don't be one of these guys, you know. So, yeah, I knew that was something dangerous at that point, so. On the bright side, this is definitely not material we've covered in a previous show. Yeah, so. this, this is new ground, <laughs> and I love it. Fucking brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you, you mentioning the dog attacking you, man. That's a really topical thing over here just yeah, now as yeah, well. Yeah, actually, yeah. We're, we've got a new dog ban after young children getting attacked by pit bulls in particular, man. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I used to breed pit bulls, right? So, I mean, I, I have a, had a penchant for, like, liking these dogs, but... That was uh, the first time that I'd got, you know, I'm not one of these anti, but that dog had no fucking reason in the world to attack me. None at all. And just something twigged in his head that day. I was like, boom, gotta get this guy. So, yeah, never had that happen with any other dog I've owned. So... Um, And aside uh, from John Wayne Gacy, man, you also interviewed Charles Manson, is that right? Yeah, well, we, we exchanged letters back and forth before he got, you know... Used to play this game called the Gimme Game, you know, and, uh, you know, as a journalist, you just got to shut that down. Members of the family were writing, asking me for 50 bucks for this. And, you know, could you buy me a tape recorder for that? And I was just like, look, I don't have any money coming in because you haven't finished your tape for me. And, you know, there was a victim's compensation fund. So finally, he snuck a tape out through his lawyer to me and I put it out. But it just got kind of fraught, you know, and he wasn't getting out of jail anyway. So what was the point? I mean, at one point, the family had done another record that I was now going to pick up to distribute. And I tried to explain consignment to them. And they were like, yeah, yeah. But it was clear that they didn't get it. And so they were trying to threaten me. And of course, this is when I was abusing steroids. So I was out of my mind and I gave him my address and I gave him my schedule 
And I said, you guys want to get tough with me any time of the day or night? And also I had my federal firearms license. So not only was I taking steroids, but I was like, you know, <laughs> to the tits with steroids, I was out of my mind. And then I realized how incredibly stupid that was because no matter how tough I am right now, I can't tell you what's happening to my car, right? Mm -hmm. Or my house, <laughs> you know, they're not going to come at me directly knowing I'm aggressively armed and fucking steroided out and crazy. No, you blow up your shit. So I realized that that was stupid. Yeah, was that when you were breeding pit bulls as well, man? Because it's a pretty rounded picture you're painting. <laughs> yeah, but I also lived in the murder capital of America at the time. So that kind of gives you some kind of context. Of course, I still live there, but it's no longer the murder capital of America. So. <laughs> Fucking hell, man. Um, yeah, well, I guess before we finish with a couple of kind of like rote questions about Oxbow, I, I've noticed you commenting on machismo and, and modern men. And I think like it's been interesting to watch the transition. And this is somebody who I'm sure has cropped up in numerous conversations in the past as well. Like the likes of Henry Rollins, you know, that kind of 80s machismo thing and trying to transition in that into something that sort of works now, that sort of fits with his audience now. Because I think. One thing I noticed, well, a lot of things that used to be considered quite left-wing or quite liberal or quite questioning, that the world kind of moved around them, you know, so like, for example, the Bill Hicks humour of questioning, the, and, and now it's almost the dialogue of the right, you know, that conspiratorial mindset is actually not seen as being totally healthy yet, and I think yeah. some of that some of that healthy, inverted commas, machismo of the 80s has definitely transitioned into the Proud Boys rhetoric, the Gavin McInnes yeah, world of is a right now. Yeah. Man. How do you feel about that as a guy who embraces fighting as a healthy you know, outlet? Uh, where do you stand on that stuff now? Well, you got to understand my background in this, the memoir makes this is very strange, right? Because I have four sisters and I have four daughters and men are only born into my family in about, for about every 50 years. Like, for example, there's my Uncle Sammy, who's now dead, me and my grandson. Every other man in the family has married in. So and this is actually a source of my violence because I identify primarily as like like a woman. Like, right. I'm like um, and when I get my sense of injustice and outrage, when I see stuff done to me that I know a guy would do to a woman in a second and just, you know, like bullies you know, run roughshod over, it, it causes an oversized reaction from me. So these guys are, you know, what is that great uh, Einstein's and the record or song, Habermensch? These are half men, all that school, all those cats from uh, fucking Andrew Tate and all the, the Mola men's right activists. These are, these are half men. These are guys who had their feelings hurt, you know, by some woman at some point who, you know, the woman, the devil in the blue dress and they massive case of, of, of overcompensation. You know, I am much more comfortable hanging out with women all the time and not like one of those guys who hangs out with women and just, oh, I got an audience. It doesn't stop fucking talking, you know, um, when he's around a bunch of women. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of macho ideation in my pastimes. I'm a weightlifter. I do martial arts. I collect guns. I got a 1965 Chevy Chevelle muscle car that plays the theme to The Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> but... The reality of it is that this is a carapace, you know, um, and stuff that I do because, you know, if you read the memoir, you know, but at the time I was 10, they'd already tried to kill me two or three times. So it was pretty apparent to me really early that if I was going to make it, that it was going to be, that there was going to have to be, that there was, that was going to have to be part of it, you know, mm -hmm. and also it wasn't, wasn't compensatory. 
you know, it was um, it was innate as well. You know, I did I didn't like the feeling of people feeding off of fear. I didn't like the fear, and I didn't like the people who fed off of it. Um, so all that stuff. I mean, I don't think Rollins is very functional. You know, he's made that claim himself publicly. You know, he, he claims to not have functioning relationships. You know. I'm like friends with almost much to my wife's chagrin with 90% of my exes, you know, and uh, I, I, I believe I'm, you'd have to ask my current wife. I believe I'm fairly functional, <laughs> you know, despite the activities and, uh, and you talk to my kids. I'd like to believe I'm a fairly good father, but that stuff just falls on deaf ears. This is uh, maybe your pee pee's too tiny. Maybe somebody hurt your feelings. Maybe all these things that have stunted your growth as a man. And some of those guys eventually make themselves because they see, oh, yeah, Ron's is into weightlifting. Eugene's into weightlifting. Maybe they jump the fence and they get over to talking to me, kind of. And my worldview is so diametrically opposed to, you know, that old Eastern adage about the, you know, the, the, the branch that doesn't bend and it breaks, you know, I'm much more supple in my approach to reality. And, and you know, I'm not the kind of guy, I'm not a, I like to fight, but I'm not a likes to fight guy. I have nothing to prove out there. And that's why typically I'm always smiling when I'm beating somebody up because it's really, we're in a teachable moment that they have asked for. So I'm providing some sort of public service, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you should find some uh, proud boys and, and, and display that public service <laughs> to them. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, as you say, that's going to be in a walk across dirty water and straight into Murderer's Row, which is coming out officially 21st of September, I believe. The other thing that came out recently, which I think we need to make a nod to, is uh, Love's Holiday, the Oxbow record on Ipecac. Yep. How are you feeling about it, man? I mean, how are you feeling about where you're at? I mean, I know you've said that Oxbow is a continuing process to get towards an, an unattainable perfection. I'm feeling pretty good about it. I, there was some concern that the songs wouldn't play live, and some live reviewer from the UK actually had that same concern, and he said, "I didn't, I didn't know how this was going to work live." But it works live. And so he viewed the same moment that I had when I understood, hey, it's actually working. <laughs> you know, it actually works. So um, it was necessary. It was really necessary. I don't want, I mean, I view these these records as conversations and I don't want you to pull up a, a chair next to me at the bar and hear me. What well, kind of, well, how does that speak to my emotional growth if I'm still moaning and gray? Then it, then it becomes shtick. And that's not, we're not shtick. I mean, we don't have the sense that people give a shit about what we do one way or the other. So it's very easy to answer the dictates of our souls, you know. And then also, and also, you know, with Bunuel, I've got a good, a good Yang to Oxbow's Yang. So I, I feel pretty, I feel pretty happy. Uh, I mean, it, it, the secret is, and you're probably the first media person I've talked to about it, that it got uh, lovely Merck got nominated for a Grammy.
best new rock performance we just found out like two days ago Fabulous. so yeah i'm excited i'm excited about that and i was glad to be able to do it with uh you know christian hater uh, lingua ignota um though she's you know she's refused to appear in the video or play it live with us <laughs> because of, of epic X connection to her ex in that that oh, drama but we don't have anything to do with that we wanted her to do it based on vocal quality and i think she delivered a stunning performance and it works really well with my voice so that's excellent man congratulations well yeah, yeah. I, I think we'll probably round this off by just asking you a really simple bottom feeder question here man and we'll take the the most recent album out of the equation because that's too often the answer of your other back catalogue, are there any particular highlights? Is there shit you love going back to and it still feels really fucking poignant to you? And yeah. by, con by contrast, are there any moments that you're like, that one just, I don't think we got that right? No, I love all Oxbow records unreservedly, except there is one scream on the song Hunger uh, off of Fuckfest that I would have redone, but Nico persuaded me not to because we recorded it live. Mm -hmm. And he said in the spirit, you know, aesthetic spirit of what we've done, you should not change it. And I regret not changing it to this day. Nobody else hears it, but I hear it. But my favorite is King of the Jews. Because that was clearly the point at which the audio suicide note that I was hoping to deliver with Fuckfest, where that kind of came to an end, where I decided that I probably was, I deserve to be alive a lot more than other people walking this planet, so. That's the one that's got Lydia on it a lot, isn't it? Yeah, and Sammy Davis Jr. on the cover. Yeah, that's yeah. right, that's mm -hmm. right. <laughs> Man, it's been a real, real pleasure talking to you. I mean, there's so, so much shit going on in your life. It's fucking ridiculous. We could have, yeah. done, we could have done a fucking short series on it. But um. <laughs> well, you talk about that, but you know the whole Ozzy thing that involved me doing multiple interviews with the FBI and the Department of Justice and my ex-boss possibly going to prison for thirty years has trundled into four two documentaries, two feature films that I've signed on to help. So this. Even what we covered is just a tip of an iceberg, but who knows? <laughs> Hollywood, Hollywood is the land to smoke up your ass. So four deals could be zero deals tomorrow, but it's all been completely compelling and interesting, especially given how much that person made my life miserable. Can you imagine if the worst, if you were able to witness and participate in your, the worst boss you ever had getting arrested and facing <laughs> three years in prison? Every day is a good day for me. <laughs> uh, well, to listeners, uh, please, if you enjoyed half of what Eugene said here, go and get a copy of A Walk Across Dirty Water and straight into Murderer's Row this month next month whenever you can and check out the new oxbow record uh mark any final thoughts i mean it does doing the research for eugene does make you feel like what the fuck have i been doing in my life <laughs> yeah that, that's that's pretty much the impression i was getting as well <laughs> hey don't don't let your meat loaf you know you gotta get out in fact I'm, I'm coming back to the uk on a book tour when i can find some time between these oxbow american shows and Bunuel and stuff so yeah come to those those should be pretty fun i did i opened them did the first one at supersonic um, and I tell stories that were not ready for prime time, <laughs> which I sort I sort of regret now because I got I had a little bit to drink, and, <laughs> and so I was talking about all the stuff I, I chose not to put in for good reason. Yeah, not no. a high point, but you know. 
hey, Eugene, you're you're talking to people from Glasgow, a city where Jerry Sadovitz is like one of the most popular comedians, right? So we are ready for that shit. <laughs> okay, we are, high tolerance, man. Thank you so much for your time. It's Thank been you. an absolute pleasure. Uh, we really look forward to seeing you here if you do come here on the book tour yeah. and on another musical tour. I believe today is the last show of your tour with Oxford. Yeah. Is that right? You enjoy some well-earned dressed. Yeah, thank you, man. Send me the link when it's done. Absolutely, man. Thanks for okay. making time. Bye-bye.